You are listening to a message from Richard Griffin spent the last 28 years of his career serving as Queen Elizabeth's personal protection officer. And to get away from the comings and goings of the castle, the queen would sometimes escape to really remote parts of the country and go for a quiet picnic. Typically, she would see no one, and that was the point. But on this particular occasion, where it was just the queen and Richard, they came across two Americans hiking one of the hillsides. And upon their meeting, it was very obvious from the beginning that these two Americans did not recognize the queen. So they small talk for a moment, where have you been in Britain, where are you going, that sort of thing. And then the hikers turn the question towards the queen. So where do you live? And she kindly responds, oh, I live in London. But I've got a holiday home on the other side of the hills. And one of the gentlemen said, well, how often have you been coming here? And her majesty said, oh, ever since I was a little girl, so around 80 years. And they said, wow, so if you've been coming up here for 80 years, then you must have met the queen. And she says, oh, I haven't, but Richard here meets with her regularly. And the American says, oh, you've met the queen, what's she like? And Richard quips back, oh, she can be quite cantankerous. <laughs> and without missing a beat, the hiker puts his arm around Richard, pulls out his camera, hands the camera to the queen, and says, can you take a picture of us? I can't wait to tell people back home we met someone who knows the queen. <laughs> she plays along with it, snaps a picture, and the Richard Connery says, why don't we swap places, and I'll get a picture with you and her as well. And they never let on who she was. And the hikers went on their way, and the queen said, I'd kill to be a fly on the wall during your slideshow presentation back home. I wonder if anyone will have the gall to tell them who I am. The queen, not in the elements that they thought she would be in. The hikers, not expecting or preparing to meet the queen. And then very unexpectedly, they stumble upon her in the quiet little place, a, a picnic on the hillside. And whether it was because she was incognito or because she wasn't where they thought she would be, they did not recognize her. Perhaps, perhaps, they were so enamored with the idea of the queen and the crown that they actually missed her. Perhaps we are so enamored with the idea of Jesus that we actually miss him. That we love talking about God, not realizing that we have access to him, to see him. Maybe, maybe there's an expectation that we will meet God in places that we most expect to meet him and nowhere else. Do we have eyes to see? Jesus' first words to his first disciples in the Gospel of John are, Come and see. Philip is invited to follow Jesus, and he runs and tells his friend Nathaniel, we found the guy, the one who Moses wrote about, the one who the prophets told us was coming. He's here, and Nathaniel said, Joseph's son from that backwoods town that no one ever visits. And he says, hey, just come and see for yourself. There is a lot of conversation in the church today about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Is it something happening in here? 
This is something happening out there. For people who live in a democracy, the concept of a king or a kingdom is more akin to watching The Crown on Netflix or a quirky interview that Oprah does. Our concept of kings is shallow, to say the least. We have not lived in a world where coronation and the reign of a person has any real relevance, even in countries that have kings and queens like England. It has become more of a yesteryear, days gone by, than any real significance in the society of which they rule. So what is the kingdom of God? Is it social? Is it political? Is it personal? Is it communal? Is the kingdom of God something that is happening now? Or is it something that's happening in the future? What do countries like the United States or Israel have to do with the kingdom of God? Is the kingdom primarily about my ethics? Or the church's ethics? Or society's ethics? Is it a personal set-apartness of holiness within the people who follow Jesus? Or is it an attempt to change the landscape of a society's conscience? If you ask ten people, you will get ten answers. My point is that we talk about the kingdom as if we were all talking about the same thing. As if there is a shared understanding of obscure language when our cultural clues are vastly different than Jesus' day. And in our attempt to become compelling disciples, we would miss the whole point if we missed what Jesus referenced so often. How is it that the central message of Jesus and the central messages of all four gospel accounts has been so conflated and confused? So I want to sketch a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God and our participation in it because something that is mentioned as often as 122 times in the gospels is worth exploring what it actually is. We are ending our three circles and tackling the third today, the co-mission circle. And we will start from the beginning. The marching orders given to humanity were to rule and reign in the world, to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. And we're going to get into more of this in the fall, but this is the essence of Genesis 1 and 2, to partner with God in ruling the world. Unfortunately, the co-rulers launch a coup and redefine good and evil and have a desire to rule as the sole monarchs, and thus becomes the great gap between God and his intended partners. One of the eight most important chapters in biblical theology is Genesis 12, and it starts like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. God takes a 75-year-old nomad named Abram and his wife Sarah, who is unable to bear children, and says, go outside and look up. And by the way, when they went outside and looked up, there was no such thing as electricity. So actually, the sky is lit up with stars. And he says, your family line is going to be greater than all that you see. And from Abraham and Sarah, God's people are formed. And over the course of the next several generations, God's people would grow and grow. And God had promised them that they would become a nation, inherit a land. Their name would be great. And they would be a, what, blessing to the nations. And as they grew, another nation viewed them as an inherent threat. 
That was Egypt, and they would enslave Israel. And the slavery of the people of God and the freedom brought about by God through the ten plagues, ultimately through the Passover meal, becomes a mile marker in the history of the nation. From crossing the Red Sea that would lead up to Mount Sinai, God strikes a covenant with Israel, calling them to heed his law through a radical life of love overflowing in obedience. And God promises to remain with his people and provide something called a substitutionary atonement, a sacrificial animal, as the means for allowing them to experience intimacy with him without incinerating them. And nevertheless, though God had come through for Israel time and time again, God's chosen people became increasingly envious of other countries. For years, Israel functioned without a king. Instead of a palace like everyone else, they had a temple because there was this understanding that God was king. But the majority of Israel would forget God, leading to their ruin. And ultimately, as God often does, he gives them what they wanted. He gives them a king. And after only a few kings, the newly united kingdom was divided, resulting in the destruction and exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms. But during King David's reign, God said that a savior king would triumph and establish a global kingdom of both ethnic Israel and the nations, and he would do so only through a substitutionary sacrifice. And by Isaiah's time, the descendants of Abraham... And the members of the dynasty of David no longer trusted the promises of God. They chased after the wind that led to God's judgment, not blessing. Judah would move from independence under Yahweh's provision to subservience under pagan rule. But if you look at Isaiah chapters 10 and 11, you see that even though the Assyrian army defeats Israel, God promises that even in the darkest night, where it appears that every promise made will not come to pass, God re-ups and says, I have not left you. He says, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, a branch from the roots that shall bear fruit. This, by the way, this passage of Scripture is where we get the term Messiah. Uh, in Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. It means the anointed one with the Holy Spirit. So what all the Israel kings did not have, and what all the people of God did not know they needed, was not merely a new structure, a new way of government. They needed a new soul, a new heart, a savior king anointed by the Holy Spirit. And even the best of the Hebrew kings, think Hezekiah, think Josiah, they were closer to the end goal. But even in the end, kings like David, a man with the famous title of being after God's own heart, did not end his reign with integrity. It had actually moments of catastrophe. And what God reminds us in Ezekiel is this, I am taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. They did not need a different king. They needed a different kind of king. Because political infrastructure was not the root of the issue. They did not need governmental overhaul or to clean house. They needed a new way of being human. The kingdom involves the people of God being changed from the inside out. And then out of that... We see Isaiah's critique centers around the social conditions of how the people of God are treating others. There is a word picture in Isaiah 11, and here's what it says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, 
and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, this is not necessarily meant to be read literally, but literarily. Um, it's not as if Jesus actually has an actual flaming sword coming out of his mouth that kills people, but that his words will cut right to the core of a person. There is personal renewal, and then there are social conditions that are to be affected because a personal renewal has happened. To be personally changed and generally apathetic to the world around us is not to be really changed. To be part of a new kingdom is to participate in the economy of the kingdom. We have made it possible, at least at some level, to mirror some of the Israelites' actions. Our personal relationship with God, our practice of worship, our daily devotion, our community of friends does not end up spilling out onto our street corners. And there's a lot of things that God has to say in the prophets about those who have personal piety but mirror the social conditions of the world in which they inhabit. And it's not a lot of encouraging things. The vision Isaiah is laying out is not of a generally nicer population. It's of a new world. And this is where Isaiah starts to lay out a vision of the restoration and renewal of the world. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. So we have a vision of personal redemption, of the anointed one coming to cleanse us and give us a new heart. We have a vision of social restoration, of the anointed one coming and upending social dynamics that are not God's intention. And we have a vision, a cosmic restoration of the anointed one's renewal of the world, extending even to the animal kingdom. This is the crescendo that the earth, they it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord, the beauty and the presence of God. In Isaiah's vision, the healing and the salvation spreads out from the earth, heart and into the earth. All of the universe is jam-packed with the glory of God, the presence and the wonder of God himself. That is Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God. It is a beautiful vision. And with that background set and the future hope planted into the remnant people of God, insert the king. His arrival, of course, was nothing spectacular. In fact, the opposite. It was downright sad. You can't find it on a map. Even in modern-day Israel, isn't it unique and potentially a bit frustrating that there's only speculation about where the king of the world was actually born? And the majority of his life is nothing spectacular, of which we know little about. We know he was a carpenter working a very blue-collar job from a blue-collar town. For 30 years, we do not get much. And upon entering his public ministry, the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus. He hears the Father's announcement over him. You are my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. And that is the springboard for his royal address after John was arrested. He proclaimed the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. The word for kingdom is Basilia, it's a closer to a verb than it is a noun. Sometimes it is translated the reign of God. Some theologians describe it as the range of God's effective will. 
Probably our most vivid example is Jesus praying the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is perfectly experienced in the heavens. It is not perfectly experienced here on earth. Our world is a wilderness. Chaos is its currency, not flourishing. And you cannot have a family dinner or a walk on central or sit in the silence of your own home for 30 minutes and not come face to face with the fact that God's moral will is not accomplished all the time in me or around me. And yet, and yet, if you have your head up and you look around, you also notice that in fact, the kingdom continues to break in. Amidst chaos, there is beauty. Amidst violence, there is peace. Amidst uh, confusion, there is forgiveness. I think of places like China or Iran or North Korea where state-sponsored persecution is rampant and yet pockets of life and of grace and of non-violent worship continue to sprout up. The fastest growing church in the world is the underground church of Iran. There are wells of water where people are invited to come and drink. It's one of the great tensions of this kingdom language, the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has come because God the king has come, but it's only come in part. And in the king's arrival, he gives us signs of his kingdom, he gives us symbols of his kingdom, and he gives us a summary of his kingdom. One sign is this. There is a story in the Gospel of Luke that's not mentioned in any other gospel. It's the arrival of God to a town called Nain. When Jesus arrived at the main entrance, he was stopped by a funeral procession. It was mostly quiet except for this screeching sound. The priest was leading the way, followed by some family members. And then there was the woman, the boy's mom, a widow who was now burying her son. And right behind the mother was her son in a casket carried by four teenage pallbearers. Grief upon grief. The screeching sound was hers. It was not sad tears. It was utter devastation. Inconsolable, uncontrollable grief. No one knew how the boy died. All they knew that it was a surprise to everyone. And Jesus stands at the welcome gate of the city. He couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't watch it. His heart broke so completely that everything else faded to a blur. And only the woman was in focus. Don't cry, he blurted out. And everyone stops. And he walks up to the casket with all eyes on him, wondering who the heck is this man and what the heck is he going to do? And he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the teen sat right up in his casket. And the sheer emotion that came upon the entire crowd, that moment was a combination of absolute terror and utter delight. The mother's screams of agony turned to screams of joy. Pain in its rawest form had suddenly given way to joy in its rawest form. We know so little about what Jesus' ministry was in the town of Nain. We know nothing about his success as a preacher in their temple or the possible presence of a church there in the years that followed. The clearest manifestation of God's kingdom in character in Nain did not end with an altar call. It did not end with communion bread. Or it did not end with discussions about the Torah. When God showed up to Nain, it looked like a teenage boy sitting up in his casket. It looked like a mother who had lost everything, regaining everything. 
It looked like someone who wasn't looking for Jesus suddenly and abruptly getting, erupt getting interrupted by Jesus in the best way. We don't know what the citizens of Nain thought of what Jesus had to say. All we know for sure is that everyone was glad that he showed up. Everyone, the priest at the head of the processional, the pallbearers who were the boy's friends, the mother weeping hysterically, and the teenager who got his breath back. Jesus was a welcome addition for everyone because he had, become, he had come to repair a broken creation. And by the way, that affects everyone. When Jesus showed up in a new city, it was good news for everybody, both those in the temple every day and those who were not interested in setting foot in that building. Jesus was a welcome intrusion for those who believed and those who never would. For those hanging on his every word and those who stood at the fringe wondering what the commotion was all about and who walked away annoyed the second God was mentioned. Jesus is good news for the world. For God so loved the world. Good news that day was a boy getting his breath back and her mother and his mother getting her son back. So my question to you is what is good news to our city? What is good news to your neighbor? What is a sign that the kingdom of God is in fact breaking in? The good news, evangelion is the word in Greek, is the, it's, just an, it's, it's, a, it's a word for an announcement. In fact, it was used quite frequently across all political spectrums in ancient Rome. It is a proclamation. It was regularly used when military leaders came back from war or when emperors were coronated. And so the good news is that the king has arrived and the good news is not to straighten up and get your life together, it's to come and see the king. Philip's testimony to Nathaniel that the Messiah has found me and his reign is going to extend around the world. That is the royal announcement. And in the Gospels, we get the signs of the kingdom. In the story of Nain, it's a foreshadowing of the kingdom, of resurrection life. There is no bigger signpost of the coming kingdom than a boy getting raised from the dead. Jesus also gives us symbols for the kingdom. They're called metaphors. He's very confusing, quite frequently, in his explanation of the kingdom. If you think about the different things he compares his kingdom to, Mustard seeds. The weight of a mustard seed is 1.13 grams. The circumference of a mustard seed is 3.75 millimeters around. It fits like a pebble in your hand. And yet planted in the ground, it grows into branches. It provides homes for birds, shade for people, and none of it, none of it, none of it happens instantly. If there is one evidence in the scripture, it is that expediting the process is not God's go-to. Just ask Joseph, who was falsely accused and imprisoned for two years before being in a position to save his people. Just ask Israel, who labored 400 years in Egypt before tasting the milk and honey of the promised land. And just ask Elijah, who endured severe persecution and animosity from Ahab before ever hearing the whisper of the Lord. And just ask Jesus, who spent 30 years of his life in complete obscurity before he ever came on the scene. 
God is reminding us that great treasures come in miniature sizes. No one looks at the growth of a seed and sees the growth happen in a moment. Just like a child growing into an adult, it takes so much time. But consider this, 2,000 years ago, a group of 120 people were not even on the radar of the Roman world. Now the Roman Empire is dead and the kingdom of God is thriving. The mustard seed is well on its way to becoming the mustard plant. The kingdom is breaking out. And then he talks about leaven, a morsel of yeast seemingly consumed in a larger lump of dough, but it ends up permeating the flour and transforming dough into bread. The yeast works silently and insensibly. It doesn't really make sense. And yet it works strongly and irresistibly. This is a description of the good news of the kingdom of God, working silently and irresistibly. Here is a living example. There was a woman by the name of Susanna. She was relatively poor, married to a pastor who was deeply dysfunctional. She lost nine kids in infancy and raised ten more kids nearly single-handedly. Her home burned down twice. Her husband went to jail twice. She gave her children six hours of schooling a day, and she gave each of them an additional hour of undivided attention a week. But here's what she did. Whenever she wanted and needed and desired to pray, she would merely pull the apron that she wore nonstop over her head. Her kids knew when mom has an apron over her head, don't disturb her, she's meeting with God. By the way, I tried that this week. I needed to go into my room after I tried it to get some more prayer down. My kids did not, uh, didn't think it was that cute. And such simple prayers whispered on a daily basis could not have had a more reverberating impact around the world. When her husband was jailed for financial mismanagement of church funds and his successor was an equally terrible pastor, she decided to take matters into her own hands. She started a, she started a Sunday school class in her kitchen. Neighbors started coming, so she moved it to her barn. It grew to about 200 people every Sunday meeting in this barn for prayer and song and scripture. The mother of John and Charles Wesley, God would use Susanna to change the world through faithful prayer over her 10 kids. A housewife with a hard life from a small town in rural England became the mother of some 80 million Methodists in more than 130 nations. Yeast, invisible until it's irresistible and irrefutable. And then finally, Jesus gives the summit of the kingdom, which is his death and resurrection. Biographies spend very little time talking about someone's death. In fact, most of their life is expounded and just glorified in a biography or a memoir. Maybe the appendix is given mention of their death. Which is why the gospel accounts are so counterintuitive. A king's legacy is built on his life, not, in, not his death. A king's legacy is built on what he accomplished, 
But the gospel spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the king's death. And here's what is so striking to me, and here's what I can't get over, and here's what you're going to hear me mention over the next nine months, because I have come to a startling realization that is absolutely wrecking me. When we consider Jesus, we think of his birth and his life and his death as one sweeping divine act. We rarely distinguish between the life of God and the death of God. But Jesus did not give us one great gift, he gave us two. Typically, when people speak of the passion of Jesus, they are intending to make much of the brutal suffering of Jesus. They're referencing whips, soldiers, nails, crosses, mockery. Make no mistake, Jesus' death was brutal. But the brutality of the way he died was not his passion. The passion of Jesus was his free choice to die. The English word passion takes its root in the Latin passio, meaning passivity. And that is its primary connotation. What the passion narrative describes for us is Jesus' passivity. He gives his death to us through his laying down, just as he, as he had previously given his life to us through his activity. For 33 years, all we get is Jesus being active, right? Teaching, doing, instructing, healing, inviting, comforting. But his final 24 hours represented a distinct shift. Beginning with his arrest in the garden, Jesus gave us his passivity, his death. Every gospel author's description of Jesus takes an obvious grammatical turn. All the verbs become passive. He is led away. He is questioned. He is whipped. He is mocked. He is provided help in carrying his cross, and he is nailed to it. At least at the human level, he is no longer doing, he is allowing to be done. He is no longer acting, he is being acted upon. So when people question God, it is always related to his activity, right? What was God doing when that happened to me? How could a loving God willingly allow this in my life? Why did God act in this way? As people who often demand more action and more doing from God, consider this. The greatest gift God ever gave us was not his activity. It was his restraint. It was his willingness to be acted on without intervention. It was his chosen powerlessness, not his power. It was not his doing, but his allowing. It is the passivity of God that is most revealing of his character. In Jesus' passion, he gave us a gift we could not receive by his action. The Jewish rabbi had walked all over the Roman Empire for three years, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. But none of that looked like God to those who had a say. Somehow, what they missed in his power, they saw in his restraint. The Roman official, the centurion, recognizes the divine bloodline in Jesus by his surrender, not his Victory By his love, not his force. There was something otherworldly, something wondrous about the way he willingly gave up his life. That's why the king's way does not make sense. Kings conquer by action. God conquers by sacrifice. It is an upside-down kingdom. And finally, resurrection. 
Jesus is the first fruit of the new kingdom, the first bud of spring. Death, inevitable, but not final. It's merely a comma, not a period. Even the king of kings, who would clothe himself in funeral clothes, walks out of his casket as both the sign and the substance. The kingdom has come and is coming again. But even in his resurrection, God continues to confound us. If I were him, if I were him, I would make a beeline for the Roman Colosseum or Herod's palace or Pilate's courtroom. Something like bodily resurrection happens and your immediate thought is, I need to get to the important people and tell them, I told you so. I have defeated what's going to take you all out. But his beeline is not to the halls of power, but to those who had abandoned him the previous 48 hours. The story is not about God proving something. It's not about God sticking it to the man. It's not about God making a point. The kingdom is about God remaking something. Nearly remaking us disheartened, frustrated, slow-to-get-it followers. The kingdom is about a king who has announced his arrival in the most unpredictable of circumstances. Common, unimpressive, non-flattering. And he's building his kingdom in the most unpredictable of ways. Not by winning, but by dying, and then by rising. But it's the people that he goes after post-resurrection that makes no sense. He does not chase down Tiberius, he chases down Thomas. He does not go after Pilate. He's looking for a beach alcove off to the side to have breakfast with Peter. Who is Peter in Rome? Nobody. Jesus is pursuing nobodies. It is not top down. It's always and forever and will always be from the beginning of the story until now from the bottom up. Julius Caesar, the most powerful person in the history of the Roman Empire, is merely a footnote in the history of the world. But Jesus' beauty and presence is increasingly covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. I will wrap up with a story. Uh, a few months ago, I heard a story about Mike Gerald that continues to haunt me. He's a church planner. And he was sharing a trip of one of his buddies that uh, went to Yellowstone. And one of the hopes is that they would see a bear in the wild. That was the only thing they wanted to see, a grizzly bear in the wild. And as they're driving to the park, all of a sudden, they get to the overlook, or a overlook. And 50 people are huddled around. Everyone's got their binoculars out. And about a half a mile away, there is a giant grizzly bear with her two baby cubs. So people are losing their minds, right? Oh my gosh, grizzly bear, grizzly bear. They cannot believe how majestic this thing is. And they probably sit there and watch this bear for two hours. He's just pacing, he's feeding, he's growling in the natural habitat. They can't stop talking about it once they leave. They could not believe what their eyes saw. A grizzly bear in the wild. And as they exit the park, they run across the visitor center. And at the visitor center, they have a grizzly bear exhibit. And they walk in. And there are two grizzly bears behind the glass where you can get real up close and personal with them. And you can actually nearly touch them if it weren't for the glass. And guess what? Barely anyone is taking notice. People are very disinterested in the safe grizzly bear. 
one of our temptations is we tell people, hey, you can find Jesus. He's behind the glass on Sundays. We have settled for a Jesus that is predictable. Sure, he's still the same size. He's big and majestic, but he's very, very safe. He's tamed. He's not going to confront me. He's not going to ask me to do anything that I wouldn't do if I never knew him. I remember a situation not too long ago where Sarah and I found ourselves right across the street on Atlantic in a house filled with domestic violence. And we were literally asked to come over to resolve a family dispute where six hours before a teenage boy sucker punched his teenage girlfriend. And while it took everything in us to attempt to de-escalate the situation, I walked away from that encounter thinking, this has to mean what it means to meet Jesus in the wild. The invitation is not to walk out the door and leave Jesus here. He is out there. He is pursuing your neighbors. He's out there accomplishing his mission. He's out there bringing justice where there's manipulation. He's out there welcoming you to worship him by joining him. And if you have ever experienced Jesus in the wild places, in your neighborhood, on the ball field, around a dinner table, in the classroom, at the lunch break, or maybe in, maybe in the small spaces in your kid's bedroom at night, you know this. There is a real element of danger. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. I'm not bored. Who needs Netflix when your life is a part of the drama? I think our temptation is we want to binge the Netflix shows because we're looking for a little bit more thrill. And Jesus is saying, I am the thrill. Are you paying attention to where Jesus is doing something? And though, by the way, he's doing a thousand things right now you might be aware of two of them. One of the things I love about this church is the hunger that Jesus not be contained in these four walls. God could not be contained in the temple. God would not be bound to the synagogues. Though the temple was necessary and the synagogues critical. I am not negating them whatsoever. They're absolutely essential. I'm just pointing out that the physical building where people gather to worship are just the visible signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom is not bound to the corner of this street. It can't be. It can't be. I don't want to be the American hitchhikers who are so fascinated by the idea of Jesus that they miss him right in front of them. And I think that is often our case. The idea of Jesus is boring. The idea of Jesus is boring, which is why so many are bored in the church. But really good news, God and his kingdom are the antithesis of boring. It's actual life. The rest of it is a mere illusion. And the invitation is to step into the story, the only story that is going to give us actual meaning and purpose and abundant life. It is the story of the kingdom of God. 
Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are not a threat to us, but you are a threat to our false selves. You are a threat to where we pretend. But you are who you say you are. When we say yes to the story that you are writing in the world. So much bigger than us. So much bigger than us. And yet you've wildly included us. It's all grace. So much grace. So right now, even in this moment, we just receive your abundant grace. As you propel us outward. Your kingdom has come. There is good news to be shared for all peoples, for all time, everywhere, including right now in our little neighborhood in this little mountain town of Knoxville. Broken, distraught, disheveled, frustrated, split into people are looking for good news. Help us become that good news. And be willing to enter into the stories of others where there is pain, where there is hurt, specifically when it comes to the church, and say, I have a better story for you. It's the story of grace. And we ask these things in the name of the one who has come and is coming again. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.